0: Welcome back to Season 2 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $60 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to and partners of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So, with that, let me bring in this week's guest. With us today is one of the governing partners of HPS. This gentleman started his post-college career as an accountant at then Pricewaterhouse. After several years as a CPA, in the mid-90s, he moved over to Solomon Brothers, where he worked in high-yield and merger and acquisitions advisory. He and I first met in 1998, when he then joined Goldman Sachs. And during his six years there, he continued his focus on both M&A advisory and credit underwriting. In 2004, he went to Citigroup. Where he spent three years as the head of private investments for City Global Special Situations, a credit focused, on balance sheet prop fund managing over $8 billion globally. In 2007, along with previous podcast guests Mike Patterson and Pranima Puri, he joined CEO Scott Kapnick as the initial team tasked with building then hybrid principal strategies into what HPS Investment Partners is today. Scott is the portfolio manager of the mezzanine funded HPS which invests in junior capital solutions to mid and large companies globally, including investments in mezzanine, subordinated debt, preferred equity, and common equity co-investments. I've known Scott for over 20 years, and he's as good of an investor as he is a human being. So without any further ado, let me introduce this week's HPS cast guest, Scott French, governing partner of HPS. Scott, welcome to the pod. Happy to be here. Scott, listeners know I like a little history to start. Where did you grow up? Where are you from originally?
1: I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago, so a suburban town called Libertyville, Illinois. Left there to go to my alma mater, University of Illinois. Generally, people who go into business at Illinois somehow end up getting an accounting degree and usually getting a CPA. So that was my initial path uh, that led me to, to Waterhouse.
0: So after a couple of years as a CPA, you make the move over to investment banking. For those less familiar with what Wall Street was in the mid-90s, tell us a little bit about Solomon back then. I assume that's, what, million-dollar hands of liar's poker every day at lunch? How did it all go? So when I joined, they, that whole era had had kind of passed. But
1: that kind of period between you know the mid-90s up until the early 2000s with the telecom, WorldCom, Enron, all those, all those scandals, I mean, it was a booming period of time. So I kind of remember nineteen ninety-four to two thousand one, but that was also that era where you kind of were starting to see the bigger private equity firms start to get larger, start to look at these multi-billion dollar transactions. And so getting involved in some of those things in terms of the financing and you know how all that worked was probably the most interesting stuff that that I worked on at that point in time
0: so after several years at Solomon you then in 1998 make the move over to Goldman so if you go through the governing partners at HPS all of them have some experience at Goldman at various points did you meet them back then what was your history with the other partners here I would say a lot of time spent with Scott Kapnick. he was running the investment
1: bank but it was based in in the UK at that time so Scott and other senior members of the investment banking division, and then other senior members of fixed income and equities, and every one of those guys kind of had a deputy. So I did that role for a year, which if the other years were a blur, that year was the biggest blur, but I spent a, you know, a significant amount of time with Scott in that role.
0: So after those six years at Goldman, you then get an opportunity to go to Citigroup to run a private portfolio, making investments in MEZ and private equity. How did that all come about, Scott?
1: One of the gentlemen who I count in life as one of my mentors along the way, a gentleman by the name of Jim Zelter. When I was at Solomon that then merged into Solomon Smith Barney, that then merged into to Citigroup, Jim became head of the broad high yield group there. So I had a tour of duty in that group when I was there and met Jim and thought he was great. We kept in touch throughout the years. And then just at the time when I was looking to transition myself over to the investment side with a focus on trying to get involved in some of the distress and restructuring things that were going on in the world, ran into Jim at a social event. One thing led to another. and Next thing you know, I was moving. I did not think I would ever leave Goldman to go back to the firm I was at, but the role was was so compelling. And then working with Jim, who's you know one of the great mentors that I've had in my life, yeah. the ability to kind of Marry those two was very compelling. It wasn't easy to leave Goldman, but that combination of things made it easier.
0: So after three years there, Kapnick calls you and brings you back to help build what would become HBS. What was Kapnick's our CEO's, original pitch to you at the time?
1: As, as I mentioned, I had been with for, you know, 12 to 18 months in the kind of trenches with with Scott. And for those that know Scott, he's actually quite good at keeping close contact with a significant number of people. It's actually a real skill.
0: It, it's a real gift.
1: And it, not only is he good at it, he actually loves to do it, which is why yeah. I think he's good at it. And it's not, you know, an hour long conversation. And once a year, it's a 10 minute catch up. How are things doing? Or let's grab a quick coffee on my way home. Once every few months, and he 's very good at that and so Jim Zelter, who, who had built out the group at City and really was the reason I left Goldman to join city, he had decided in' six to join Apollo to basically run their credit business and you know that was a pretty meaningful event in my life because you know I enjoyed working with Jim, I felt like he had great vision on what he was doing, and I think he thought the opportunity at Apollo was going to be better for him long term. So that kind of threw a little bit of a curveball my way. And I had to kind of think about, okay, now what do we do? So right in the midst of all that, Scott with one of his every three months chats and catchups calls me. And I basically said, you know, not exactly sure what I want to do, but I'm not certain that remaining status quo is going to be the best option. That's when he started sharing with me what he was thinking about. He was talking at that point to JP Morgan and to Jess and Mary and others about joining the hybrid platform that they had acquired to help them build out their private investing, private credit, private equity part of the business. And, you know, as the saying goes, one thing led to another. And if you would have asked me, I would have probably said the logical step would be to follow where where Jim was going, but before I could really engage on that, Scott, in only the way he can. Uh, he is persuasive. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, he had thought a lot about it. And it sounded really compelling to join up at that point, JP Morgan Asset Management with a separate brand, no real focus from an asset management point of view on the private, non-traded, non-investment grade market. And if you just think about what JP Morgan's presence is in that world generally, to be able to marry
0: that with an asset management strategy was pretty compelling. The benefit of being able to grow something, but with this massive incumbency advantage behind you. So tell me, what did you think you were joining to do day one? What was the original investment thesis in 2007, right? So 2007,
1: I think we had the benefit of time because Scott had left Goldman. He hadn't really made up his mind what he wanted to do in the next phase, but he knew he wanted to shift his focus a bit to, to more on the investing side of the world. All of us between me, Mike, Pranima, et cetera, were gainfully employed elsewhere. So we, no one was in a rush. So, we, so the good news about that is we had plenty of time to actually think about what do we think is interesting to build. We'd all seen various models of non-investment grade credit focused platforms, and how do we want to build it out? So I think kind of high level, we wanted to have a global footprint. We wanted to be active across certainly liquid credit, which was by far the biggest part of the market at that point, but also saw an opportunity in private credit that if we built it right, we would be able to kind of take, you know, share, but hopefully take more than our share of that marketplace, as that marketplace would continue to develop and evolve. So the initial kind of view was Pranima focused on the biggest market, the liquid non-investment grade credit market at that point, with all of her experience and know-how there me and Mike really focused on more the illiquid side of the opportunity set. Mike at the time was at Silver Point in Europe, you know, kind of a perfect scenario there because we did want to have that global footprint. and It's not easy finding senior folks that have all the right fit in London and in Europe. So that was perfect, but also was trained over here in the US and ultimately could help build a team over there and then transition back if he chose to back to New York. And then I was had always focused really on the private investing side and at the time this was just before and right around the financial crisis you know the advent of the senior secure, private senior secured direct lending business was still pretty nascent the mezzanine business was actually growing and fairly active at that point so i joined really with a focus on the to help build out our team and build
0: out our investing portfolio in the mezzanine side what does mezzanine mean? And maybe if you could give a little sense of the evolution, what was that business, you know, 08 09 as the business was growing to what has that evolved to today, I think would be interesting. When we joined, and this was
1: right before the financial crisis, the general focus of mezzanine were smaller companies that really weren't part of the larger kind of syndicated market. Most of these companies were 25 to 50 million of EBITDA. They would typically get a senior layer from a group of banks who would, in many cases, just hold the paper on the senior loan side. And then, if the buyer of that business was paying 10 times for the asset, they could get four turns of leverage from a bank. They might put one more turn in the cap structure of quote unquote mezzanine. So, the typical mezzanine fund that existed at that point was doing, I'd say, 25 to 75 was sort of the average tranche size. And you had a bunch of folks that covered smaller mid-cap sponsors that managed 500 to a billion billion five of capital. The sweet spot of their acquisition program was that size of code. Then on the other end, 95% of the market participants were focused on that segment of the market. Then you had Goldman on the complete other extreme, who had set up, I think their first MES fund, you might be, remember more than I was in the I think, early 90s. I think that's right. Yeah. And then they just continued to grow it and found that, again, this is pre-crisis, but they had found that there were a number of situations, whether it was timing, complexity, the borrower didn't have three-year audited financials, or the borrower didn't want from a confidentiality point of view, they didn't want to issue in the high yield market and publish all of that information. Goldman had found a market where increasingly bigger issuers, who historically could have just issued in the high-yield market, were choosing to place their paper privately with the Goldman Mez Fund. So over time, as they identified more of those situations and identified them in larger quantum, by the time 2007 rolled around, I think they were managing $11 billion Mez Funds. If there were 50 Mes Funds in the marketplace in 2007, 49 of them managed somewhere between 250 to a $1 billion. And then you had Goldman managing $11 billion. And we saw that there were a number of issuers, in our opinion. The addressable market for these larger size, privately placed junior capital tranches would grow, certainly when markets are volatile. So it's another way to play on a distressed theme because you can, obviously, when things are distressed, you can invest in distressed companies. But when things are distressed, you can actually find performing companies that are just fine, but they can't get capital. So that's kind of what we had seen as some of the drivers, both at Goldman and then when we set up our business, we thought really drive activity going forward. So that's kind of what the thesis was. And then once the financial crisis hit, it was kind of like a simmering fire that had kerosene in terms of the thesis. And we found the, the addressable market every year has gone up by multiples in terms of the volume of what gets privately placed and with increasing size as well of, of issuers that are coming to when they need a junior capital tranche and certainly when they you know need a in the right instances a senior secured capital tranches I'm sure you spoke about with Mike. During his session, just an increasing number of borrowers are choosing to arrange their financing with private capital versus through the syndicated market.
0: And Scott, how do you see that evolving? That has been a market that has grown and matured. As you say, size of borrower is materially bigger than it was 10, 15 years ago opportunities where either because of discretion, certainty of execution, speed to execution, whatever it is, they might favor the private versus public. How do you see your market evolving over the next three to five years? What do you see as the big trends that are going to change things?
1: I think the regulator is hyper-focused on avoiding significant losses of balance sheet capital. As a result, in times where the markets are fine and there is no real macro turbulence in the world, that provides us an opportunity in the first instance, because there's going to be a number of issuers that are great companies. And you know for the reason that you put these guidelines in place that are a little bit sort of blunt instruments, and there's a number of companies that deserve treatment that's outside of those guidelines, but the banks have very limited degrees of freedom to operate outside of them. So that provides a step function opportunity for us just in the first instance. And then you throw volatility into the mix, whether it be what we've unfortunately been living through since March, but, you know, just other points of volatility, whether it was 2018, 2016, with kind of oil prices crashing, et cetera. Yeah, there's always something. There's always something. And when those volatility moments hit, the amount of demand for our capital just goes up exponentially. So, so I think the exciting thing for us about the next three to five years is we expect Those moments of volatility, and you can't always predict what's going to cause it, but those moments of volatility will still be here. But as we've sort of lived now through the last six, seven years of this step function change and opportunity for our capital, we've also credentialized ourselves with a lot of borrowers, not just private equity firms, but on our platform, we've really tried to build out industry focus and industry expertise to focus on providing capital to privately owned companies and really credentialize yourself across the whole universe of demand and people that require this financing. And so I think as we move into the next phase, I think the whole segment has a much deeper understanding of what we can do as a sector, but what we as HPS can do as well, specifically, both in terms of size, both in terms of industry focus, et cetera, how we can move, how we can get these solutions put in place and actually provide very large capital solutions to these companies. So I think with an ongoing opportunity set, undoubtedly having some volatility in the backdrop, but a much better understood scenario of what we can offer and, and, and much more knowledge based within the ultimate borrowing base of the world, these corporates that we work with, I think the growth in terms of our deployment of capital is going to continue to be pretty
0: robust over the next three to five years. Scott, I want to follow up on one thing you said there, because it's interesting, you know, it's implied, but much of what we do does not actually involve private equity sponsors. And you have a reputation and a track record of financing entrepreneurs. You've always had great relationships with business builders, and it's led to some very interesting opportunities for us. How do you do that? How do you source deals like that? And what makes an entrepreneur want to partner with you and with HBS?
1: Well, first of all, probably everybody has more relationships than they think. But people who own companies privately. I think in private credit historically, I think the assumption, which I don't think is right, but I think the assumption's always been those that are suited to borrow non-investment grade and non-investment grade junior capital are really the domain of a private equity firm. The latter is certainly true because that's their whole business model is to find leverageable assets that can help them take a 10, 11% unlevered return and turn it into a high teens, low 20s. That's kind of what they do. So they're always going to Require that capital. But I think there's also a number of privately owned businesses where they have the type of business model and they have the type of experience with. You know, Non-investment grade, both senior and junior financing, what's required to operate with that type of a cap structure, that type of financing. So I think we all know people who own businesses. Historically, we don't always necessarily think that this product, a mezzanine product or a direct lending product would cater to those companies because they may just borrow from the bank at 3% at a super low attachment point on a senior loan and then put all the rest in equity. What we found over time is if you introduce this product and have the conversation with some of these private business owners, you'd be surprised at how sophisticated some of them are, how acquisitive some of them are, and how their plans to achieve their strategic objectives require both a mix of their own equity, but also a fair amount of, of third-party financing. And, and in many ways, employ a, a philosophy in terms of capital structure like a private equity firm, but different than a private equity firm, they actually own the business, they know the business, they run the business, and so philosophically, when we built this business, we didn't want to have a business that was entirely tied you know, to the private equity world. And if you look at the non-investment grade, total non-investment grade issuance, and you, you probably know these stats better than I do, but if you add up that marketplace between non-investment grade leveraged loans, non-investment grade high yield, and second lien, I think that's like a $3 trillion market in the US. I think 65% of it is not private equity volume. That's right. So to, to build your whole business and then say... I got this I great... Ignore, I can ignore two-thirds of it. Yeah. So finding it is the hardest. So I think we all have relationships. So that was sort of the first stop was, you know, for people that we know that own businesses and I think those businesses are acquisitive and they're trying to kind of grow themselves, talk to them. And then that was sort of the first wave when we first started the business. The second wave was the only way you're actually going to find those private companies is to find the sectors that you like from a credit risk point of view and have the right attributes for what we're looking for for... Downside protection, all the other things, and then go deep in those sectors and hire people that know the software space, know the healthcare space, or create joint ventures with folks that know the healthcare space or their financial service space and get really deep. Start going to conferences, start going to forums where you're not just going to see the private equity guys, but you're going to see the, the private companies. And like anything, it kind of it's easy to say that you're sort of two years in and you're like, I'm spending all this money on people trying to find this stuff and we found nothing. Then you find the first deal. And before you know it, you have five deals and you have 10 deals. You know, So yeah. it's one of those things that takes a while, but you have to plant the seed early. But if you plant the seeds the right way, and I'll end with the cheesy analogy, but over time, the trees can grow quite quite high. And I think that's what we found. So today, any of our pipelines and you're involved in, in all of them, it feels like it's always kind of 50-50 between sponsor stuff and non-sponsor you know, at times like we're in right now, probably even higher non-sponsor. That's really how we've tried to go about creating a lasting flow of non-sponsor opportunities by really having that industry
0: focus and expertise. Makes a ton of sense. (laughs) If I was, Scott, a young finance professional, and unfortunately, I'm I'm an old finance professional now, but if I was a young finance professional who looks at your success with admiration, what advice would you give me? What are your lessons learned along the way to impart to some of our younger listeners? Whatever you think you want to do, and I think there's a point
1: in your life where you can kind of say in 10 years, 15, 20 years, this is the position I want to be in. Step back from that and say, okay, what are the skill sets that a person in that role has? that's facilitated their success. It hasn't guaranteed it, but it's facilitated that success and make sure you have those, make sure you're doing things in the first five to 10 years of your life that facilitate that skill set. I find this era, people can kind of get information and sort of get views on things so quickly. They just kind of want to be there. I don't typically talk through my whole career like I've done in this podcast, but I think as I do that, each piece of what I've done in my life has kind of formed a real fundamental building block for what I do now. And I always, I mean, you're, you're on these investment committee discussions with me on a, feels like a daily basis at this point, but we're always talking about accounting issues, right? Had I not spent real time, and whether it was an accounting firm or just understanding yeah, it, It's always relevant. It's always relevant. So I think, think about and talk to people about what do you call on on a daily basis to help you do your job and then try to figure out You know, how to get those building blocks in there. And because most of the people that join these types of firms have had some experience before they join here, because you need a little bit of those building blocks to jump into the queue and get going. Don't be too impatient in a world that seems to uh, promote impatience.
0: I think that's well said, Scott. Let's move then to the last segment of the podcast, something we like to call best ideas. As we think about our business, only really good ideas get into our portfolio, and we try to size good, better, and best ideas based on how attractive we think something is. And so, with that framework, we ask our guests, and I offer up a best idea each week of something that's added value to our lives recently. So, Scott, you're my guest. So, we're going to ask you to go first. What is your best idea for our listeners this week? I think
1: that a best idea for me in this period we're living in i've done two things i've and i never used to be a big believer in this but i tend to do it on the days where i'm most stressed creating a regimen where you're actually taking real downtime for yourself and i do that in the form of either usually yoga and some form of meditation i'm not there yet cuz i'm starting early seeing my chiropractor i do it on a weekly basis but you know i have found that we sit all day I sit more now than I've ever sat. I think sitting is the new smoking, um, as my chiropractor says. So that would be one idea for folks, which is probably a significant number of folks that are now working you know, from home and just create that time to invest in that. I tend to do it as well in days like I did it this morning. I have a calendar today. I do it in the morning and it just kind of sets me up for the whole day. And then the other thing I've been doing, which I think don't take it for granted because this will end um, and we'll be back to, to normal here. Uh, you know, at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future. But I've always wanted to dedicate time to various causes and charities and all the rest. And I'm the point of this isn't to go into what I'm what I'm doing specifically, but but I've actually done it now. And you can take some of your time to figure out what it is you actually want to do. You actually have to really engage to figure to figure out what you want to do and how you get involved in it. It's easy to say I want to do it, but then you know, it kind of goes on the permit to do list. And I've been able to really engage in that. So those would be my two best ideas in this crazy time that we're living through.
0: I think those are great recommendations. And as you say, I think they're incredibly important, given the moment we're in. In a work from home world, it's very easy to not take that time for yourself and to center yourself and all that. And it makes a huge difference. And those are great recommendations. Okay, so then Scott, I'll give you my best idea. And as, as listeners know, my best ideas are inspired by the guests of the week. And Scott, you're a great sports fan. And now that we've actually got sports back in our lives, and I happen to know you're a big Liverpool supporter. So first, let me say congrats on the amazing Premier League win this year. So my best idea is the English Premier League, simply. And, and I'm going to come at this from two angles. First, as an American sports fan, I think we should be institutionally much more into soccer. It's a remarkably entertaining product. And things are changing and evolving. Recently, the EPL became the third most watched sport for men 18 to 35 in the US, just behind the NBA and the NFL, which is kind of a crazy stat. And if you look at the top 10 favorite athletes for that same demographic, it includes two soccer players, Messi and Ronaldo, which certainly wasn't the case when you and I were kids. But second, for those of us with families and children, the EPL has a particularly compelling schedule. I love watching sports, but I really love watching sports with my kids. Like It's great family bonding. My kids are athletes, so they love this stuff. And one of the underappreciated gems of the EPL is that world-class sports is available on weekend mornings. Like, I can't watch the NBA finals with my little ones, not to sound too much like a cranky old man, but, like, the games are just on too late. And so for this week's best idea... I'm going to recommend the English Premier League. A, it's a great product. And B, for those of us who love doing this stuff with our children, the fact that I can roll out of bed and see world-class sports, I I think is great. So with that, Scott, thank you so much for coming on this week. We very much appreciate your insights and appreciate you taking the time to walk us through your experience and and what you're up to these days.
1: Pleasure doing this. And yeah, I love your best idea as long as everybody uh, roots for Liverpool.
0: Uh, as a massive Arsenal fan, I I, <laughs> I can't recommend that I beg part to of it. differ. I'll beg to differ, but uh, but but a great win and uh, an exciting finish to the year. Scott, thank you and appreciate you coming on. Likewise. Thanks again to our guest Scott French. Check out our show notes to learn more about Scott and the work he does for us at HBS. And a big thanks to you, our listeners. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HBS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen.